All right, now last week, we got into Proverbs chapter 23, and we got into the first three verses. And I talked about you building a working knowledge of the Word of God in your life, how absolutely important that is, and really uh, the key to your Christian life. Having a Bible, having the right Bible, doesn't do you any better or any good than having the wrong Bible if you don't let it work for you. And I, I tried to show you how God will give you a truth. And then throughout the Bible, he will show you that truth in action, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And then from that, we always get a course of action. And what he does is through, that, through those things is he establishes that truth. Now, most of God's people will, will never get to that point. Uh, they'll make some mistakes in their life. They'll have some issues in their life that they'll, uh, they'll move past. But they'll, they'll never get to the point where they'll allow the Bible to work for them. They're always blaming somebody else for their problems. They're always focusing on their issues. They will never get to the point where the Bible really will do for them what the Bible, by God's design, was designed to do for us. And that is to give us a course of action. That is to show us a way to go. We all get ourselves in dumb situations. We all do stupid things. There isn't a one of us that's not guilty of that. What we are guilty of is when we allow those things to happen in our lives, then we don't allow the Word of God to establish a course for us to get out. We stay in it, hold on to it. We try to make it work ourselves, and it only compoundingly gets worse. Letting the Bible do the work for you. As you learn the art of not just seeing, we talked about this last week, but the art of observing. Seeing what's around you. Seeing your situation, not from your own pity party. Seeing your situation from the Bible principles and then getting the course of action to move out of it. The concept of working smarter, not just harder. Our ability to see things the way they really are. And we are famous for not wanting to do that. We, it's that mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the prettiest of them all? And the mirror lies to you right up to the point where, uh, you know, Snow White shows up and you're out of business. But the bottom line is this. The Word of God is likened to a looking glass. And what people don't like about the Bible is the Bible will show you your true reflection. It'll show you what really the problem is. And when most people don't want to deal with that, they want to stay in their little pity party, they want to stay in their little world of, of self-absorbance, then... They'll always look at things from their own standpoint as they appear, and they'll never see it as it is. Therefore, they'll never get a course of action to get out of it. We saw all of this last week under the example of a feast that was set up to deceive somebody and obviously uh, to get someone killed. Doctrinally, I showed you last week that that was the nation of Israel. And then I, I showed you uh, how that uh, uh, it's fit for your everyday life, too. Those principles there of sitting down and, and considering what is diligently what is before you, that'll work in every aspect of your life, especially if you're going to work with people. When the first time you sit down with somebody, you always want to be observing. When a person gives me a situation that they're struggling with, I go into my observing mode. And you, you, you have to consider diligently what is before you. Now today... As we move through this, we're going to look at, at verses 4 through 8 uh, of Proverbs chapter 23. And I want to read it to you, and then we're going to come down and we'll, we'll make some, uh, 
but make some observations to it. it he says this. He says, labor not uh, to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly do make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. And uh, uh, Rob, would you stand up and ask God blessing on it? Good to have you down here. Ask God blessing on the service for me today. Amen. Now, in verse 4, there's two concepts we want to look at. First, he says, labor not to be rich. And uh, there's some really important principles here. Uh, you know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the theme of that book is under the sun. A lot of people get confused about that term over and over again. But what he's showing you in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's giving you an understanding of things that take place on planet Earth, which is under the sun. There's nothing mystical, magical about that phrase. He's simply going to talk about life on planet Earth as we exist under the sun, which is in the sky, in a physical sense. And the book of Ecclesiastes will talk about a lot of things. It'll talk about knowledge. It'll talk about wisdom, always in a worldly sense. But what you won't find in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think there's one reference to it toward the end, but not in but the way the book is going. What you won't find in the book of Ecclesiastes is the word understanding. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is a picture of the world view of everything. If you want a great contrast to what most people look at and how most people don't use the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes over here and the rest of the Bible over here would be a great example. You have 65 books of the Bible that give you everything you ever want to know about whatever situation you find yourself in. Then you got the book of Ecclesiastes, which is man trying to figure it out for himself. Man, forsaking the Word of God, going through all of the ologies that man goes through to try to find the answers of life to be happy, but never finds them. And the great theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is simply the theme of vanity. Everything is vanity. You'll find out that the things that man will pursue throughout his life, the things that a woman will go after and pursue through her life, that in truth, it'll be worthless. And the key to the book is understanding that all things under the sun, that man pursues, that he chases, that he tries to bring into his world, is vanity. And there are people who, uh, their whole lives, their whole lives, they have, they have went after the wrong things. And their whole lives they have invested and, and done things that uh, are, are totally outside the, the Word of God. And at the end of their life, they lose everything. Their life can be summed up in one word, vanity. And I'm talking about God's people. I'm not talking about the world. God's people are famous for laboring in all the wrong things, doing it the wrong way, doing this, doing that, and then at the end, scratching their head and saying, I wonder what happened. And the truth of the matter is, you spent your whole life pursuing the wrong things. 
And the book of Ecclesiastes will list for us, if you want to go through them sometime, the ten vanities that, uh, that are on this earth. In chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about the vanity of wisdom. And 2.26, the vanity of purpose. In 4.4, the vanity of ambition. In 7.6, the vanity of fun. In 4.16, the vanity of fame. In 4.7, self. In 6.9, covetousness. In, in 8.10, the vanity of reward. And then where we're at today, the two things that we want to talk about are found in these, in these ten things. Number nine, found in chapter 2, verse 18, is the vanity of labor. And number 10, in the text today, will be the vanity of money and riches. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, concerning our labors, he says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I have taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto men that shall be after me. You know what he's saying? He's saying when you labor in the wrong things and you spend your whole life going after things that are the wrong thing and there's vanity and you sure labor in a wrong way, you're wasting your time because once you're gone, somebody else is going to take it. And you're labor in vain. Then he says in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. He's saying here that when you love riches, when you love the things of the world, the possessions and the things that it can buy, there's nothing satisfying about it. That's why you've got to keep adding to your pile of worthlessness. That's why after 20, 30 years, you amass all of the material possessions, and, and you're still as empty as there was the day you started. He says in verse 11, the next verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says this, When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owner thereof, saying the beholding of them in their own eyes? You know what he's saying? That's a great principle. He's saying that all the money, possessions, and the riches that we have, it'll never make you a better person. You know, there used to be a commercial on TV that I thought was pretty, I thought it was a pretty good commercial. And it was about learning a foreign language. And I think learning a foreign language is an excellent thing. And they were trying to get people to do that. And the commercial started out with, will buying a new pair of shoes make you a better person? Will buying this make you this or that? And then they brought it around, but learning another language will. Because obviously, learning a language, you've got to expand yourself into a lot of different areas. And of course, all of these things will never make you a more committed Christian. And it says in that verse that it only benefits you. It benefits you in a false sense that you deceive yourself with all that you have that you're really better off. He says in verse 11, beholding themselves in their own eyes. Look at me. Look at what I got. Look how good I'm doing. Look how much money I'm making. Look at my house. Look at my car. Look at my boat. Look at this. Look at that. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil. Now let me explain that. It isn't the money itself that's the root of all evil. It's the love of it, and that means covetousness. 
coveting what we don't have. You realize our whole society? You drive down the street, you see billboards. You know what those billboards are for? They're to show you what you don't have. You watch commercials on TV. They want to entice you by showing you what you don't have. When they used to have the beer and the cigarette commercials on it uh, years ago before they banned them, they used, to, they used to always put the beer commercials, you know, like the, remember the low and brow where you got all these young kids sitting around at the beach doing clam bakes and they're all friends and laughing and having a low and brow. And that, that suggests that that's a great time. That, a bottle of low and brow and clams and a bunch of people will make you happy in life. They don't show the end results of that. They used to have the, the cigarette commercials where you'd have the Marlboro Man and he'd be riding a horse out there on the range with leather chaps on and a hat. A real man's man. Then he's out there and there's 10,000 cattle, dust coming up, you know, and he's, he's, he's riding along there and he, he's smoking a, a Marlboro cigarette and, and they, 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 everybody's watching that saying, I want to be like him. And then he looks around at the end of the commercial and he says, come to where the flavor is. And 10 million stupid people run out and buy Marlboros to get where the flavor is. Let me ask you a question. You ever been around 10,000 cows? That's where the flavor is. People are stupid. You go to the mall. They have window displays. They have sales. You know why? Because they want to show you what you don't have and you'll say, I need that. And you don't need that. But that's the way, our, that's the way it works. Now, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he saith, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Um, uh, and that's what the Lord's saying. You don't need to covet all those things because I'll always be here to make sure you have everything you need. And I, you know, and you, you ask people the question, how much, how much money will it really take to satisfy somebody? I mean, you know, the problem is, if somebody said, well, if I had $10 million, I'd be happy and I could do everything I want. No. You know, I'll tell you what happens. Anytime you get a million dollars or $10 million, your living scale goes up. Where right now, you go through McDonald's and spend $5 and think nothing of it. If you had a million dollars, you spend $10,000 and not think anything of it. It all, it all pushes itself up. And you'll be out of money before you knew what hits you. And it's, it's just the way that it goes. Uh, how, many, how many possessions do we have to have before we're finally happy and satisfied? You get a new car, and boy, you love it. That's new car smell. And you go to, you have it for a year, two years, and it smells like you now. And <laughs> you go to the car wash, the Green Lantern, or the Pink Pumpkin, or whatever you go to, and, and, and they'll ask you, what kind of aroma do you want in your car? Nine times out of ten, people will say, I want that new car smell. You know what? We all go through life. Wanting that new car smell. Because by the time you've had the car, that shiny, bright, sparkly car that you all love and this and that. And I'll tell you, and then after two or three years, you know, it, 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 it doesn't satisfy you anymore. Something happened and it's not as bright, it's not as shiny. 
You don't get that same thrill when you got in it. The night you got it, you couldn't wait to go to work the next day. Get in that new car and drive. Two years later, I got to go to work tomorrow. The fact that you got that car doesn't do it for you anymore. And that's the way it is in everything in life. And there's a great principle in the Bible found in Romans chapter 7. You know what it is? And you better learn it. There is no satisfying the flesh. There's no satisfaction in it. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 verse 2, and it's a great question that the Holy Spirit of God asks. It says, where do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Now that's a great verse. And you know what we do? We spend, as God's people, we spend our whole life laboring for things that satisfy not. And then wonder why we're not happy. We don't think. And you know what? And then when we do, we want, we want that instantaneous fix. We want, we, want, we want my pastor to be David Copperfield. I miss Mickey. All my pro. Well, he made a 747 disappear. He can make an elephant float in the air. Why can't my pastor just take me and make all my problems go away just like that? You know why? Because it always takes longer to get out of something than it takes to get in it. But everybody wants the fast fix today. Not only do they want the fast fix, they want it their way instead of the book's way. And it won't go that way. And we have labored all of our lives, and now here we are with all the problems that we have, and we're still not satisfied. Now, let me be the first one to say, I, 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 there's a great balance in having money and possession. I'm not saying you can't have nice things. I think if you have a nice house, great. I wish I had a nice house. There are ni no nice houses in Raytown. But I've got as nice as house as I can get living in Raytown. There's a Gossip Street. There's two houses that are up for sale. They went in and did them. I was walking yesterday and a guy pulled up and he says, Hey, how's this neighborhood? I said, Let me get down here because the bullets sometimes come right over the top of the cars. It's fine. I remember years ago, we had a drug house across the street. And this is when I had, this is when I had my, my, uh, my, my brown lab buddy. And, and buddy, buddy, buddy didn't like anybody other than me. Somebody else would come close, he'd go crazy. He, sometimes Steve Brackeen's dad, Steve Brackeen Sr., came over to my house to see me, and he came through the basement, and we had a gate up. And Steve's been around dogs all of his life, and, and he ran over to pet him. And before I could say don't, that dog ran him and pulled him over that gate. I said, I'll see you later, Steve. i go upstairs. I mean, Buddy didn't like anybody. And we had some people across the street that were drug dealers. I don't think it was anything heavy. You know, marijuana, you, know, you can smell it at night. I'd go out there, and, you know, and I'd come back in, and Barb would say, are you all right? And I'd say, Carberry Fields forever, you know. Yeah, I'm fine. But they were all, there was like five or six of them in the driveway, and they were smoking over there, you know, and they were, and they were, they were just a kid, you know, just, and, and I'd take him buddy for a walk. 
And, and Buddy, he, I start to take him down, and boy, he sees those guys over there, and I mean, he's, he's, he's going crazy, man. I, I said, come on, man, let's go. And, and, and that kid, eyes real big, he says, he, he, I walk him up the street, and I come back and put him in, and he, he says, he says, what, what kind of dog is that? I said, oh, that's a police dog. <laughs> he says, really? I said, yeah. What kind of police dog? I said, that's a drug sniffing dog. He says, he was going crazy. I said, yeah. I think, you got drugs over there? All nine of them. Garage door down, in the house. <laughs> Nothing wrong with having nice things. I, I don't think you need to live under a card, in a 435 bridge in a cardboard box for God's blessings in your life. If you've got a nice house, I'm praise the Lord for it. It's a balance in things. I mean, God blesses you with things and you do what's right with Him. It's when we make the blessings happen ourselves and put more into it. Well, I, I, I'll, show you the, I'll show you the downfall. I mean, the balance. You know, for me, everything has to come out of the Bible someplace. And I look at Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He certainly was the richest man that ever lived. And I look at that and I see a man who has everything with God, but then there's a downfall in his life. And most people miss this downfall. They think it was the women that he brought from all the other nations. Well, I'm not saying that that didn't mess him up. But that is not where it started. It started long before that. Because over there in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, when Solomon was designated to build the temple for the Lord, the Bible says that, it took him seven years to build the house of the Lord. And then in the very next chapter, in verse 1, it tells us that Solomon, when he built his own house, it took him 13 years. And the downfall began to come in, and it will come in anybody's life when you start spending more time doing things in your life than you do for the things of God in his world. And I think a good rule to follow, and I, hey, I, I, we got, I was kidding you. We got a very nice house. It's primitive America. Bathrooms are out in the backyard. It's great. I love it. <laughs> a little cold in the wintertime, but it's okay. I, 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 I think that there's nothing wrong with having things. And I want to stress that because I don't want anybody saying, ah, he's just picking on me. No, I am not picking on anybody. I'm trying to show you a Bible principle. You have to decide where you're at with it. I'm certainly not. I'm just showing you what the Bible says. But I'll give you a good rule to follow. That Bible says that, that, Bible says that, that Christ lives inside you. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it talks about some furnishings that we provide for him living inside. So, we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God that he's comforted. And a good rule of thumb, I would think, is this. Don't furnish your house. Don't finish off your house. Don't put all of those things, all those beautiful little things in your house, which are fine as long as you're providing for God in his house all the furnishings that he needs. I mean, denying the Holy Spirit of God the comfort of His home while we live in the luxury of ours. That's what I'm talking about. And the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off is to get God's people to think that it's good to spend your whole life laboring for things that just simply will not satisfy. And the wisest man that ever lived said, you know what, all that's vanity. All that's vanity. And then the last part of the verse, it says, labor not to be ripped, then it says this, Cease from thine own understanding. 
And there lies the issue today, really. It really does. There lies the issue, seeing it from your personal perspective instead of God's. Your understanding instead of coming to the Word of God and getting God understanding. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. <laughs> Who doesn't know this verse? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. And all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. Boy, that's an easy one to quote and memorize. But that's a tough one to follow. Changing the way you understand things. I don't know of any situation that you won't get yourself to in life that I won't get myself to in life that to turn that thing around, it's not going to be a major incident to do that. The number one issue we all face with, with God's people is the refusal to look at your issue from God's understanding and you just want to keep your own dream world going. You'll refuse to look at the principles. You'll refuse to look at the reality. You'll refuse to look at the circumstances. You'll just always go in your own understanding. And I want to tell you something. It's that same understanding that got you in the mess you're in in the first place. But, oh, we just hang on to it. I've told you many, many times, you'll never solve the problems in your life with the same thinking that caused those problems. And most people won't go there. They'll hang on to their own understanding. They'll look at something and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll freely admit, uh, uh, but th they will not change what they've got to change. They'll not do what they've got to do. Verse 5 says, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? Oh, what a great one. Yes, we will, Lord. Yes, we do. 24-7, all the time. We do it in life. We, in life, we set our eyes on things that mean absolutely nothing and we pursue them like they mean something. We do it in relationships. We forget the fact that the most intimate relationship we should have, the most perfect, pure relationship on this planet should be the one that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. We put him aside and go after Bozo the Clown or Mary Magdalene. Yeah, we will. We'll do it all the time. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon things that are not? You betcha. And you think this guy is something, and then you find out he's not, and you know what you do? You still do the same thing. You see this gal and find out she's not what she thought she was. You know what you do? You go after the same thing. You spend your whole life laboring for things that won't satisfy you. And then you, at the end, when you lose your kids, when you lose your marriage, when you lose this, when you lose your health, when you lose all this stuff, you actually... You actually sit down and scratch your head and say, I wonder what happened. Why, if some of God's people would labor as much in the Word of God as they do following the things that will never satisfy, they would be unstoppable. But because they don't, they get stopped. Putting as much value in God's truth as the things that will not satisfy you. Pursuing them. The great illusion of things in this life, as the verse says, money and possessions, that we labor to get. Wow, what I could do. I got to tell you, I'm as human as you are. I saw the news the other night where that guy in New Jersey won $376 million in a New Jersey lottery. Now, most pastors, they preach against the lottery. They say it's gambling. 
that's sin. But I don't know of a pastor in this country that if he was in his church would refuse to tithe. See, I'd handle that differently. I'd say it is sin, but since you fell into sin, this is the penalty for it. <laughs> I get the church secretary to write up a penalty ticket for a lottery. <laughs> How much is it? 10% of 376 million. No, he got out of that, out of, out of 376, walk home paycheck for that, $175 million. And I know, I know you're where you're at. I know, I, I saw it. I did. I watched it. And my jaw dropped. Even my two labs, they were on the couch. They got up and looked. They thought what he could do for me with that money. <laughs> and I, you know, I know how your brain goes. I'm thinking, you know what? If I just lived on a million dollars a year, I'd have enough for 175 years. Well, I'm not going to live 175 years, so I'll live on $200 million a year and cut that in half, and I'll make that. And your mind goes everywhere. I understand. I, I, I get it. I, I, I get it. And I know. We all say, what could I do with that? I mean, what I could buy. Well, I could move out of this Raytown neighborhood. I could get away from this. I could get all out of here. I could, I could, I could, oh, oh and I'd do something for the Lord, you know. I'd flip him 50 cents or something like that. But, 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 but what I could do, what I could buy. You see, there's, 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 there's it's like a glutton's appetite. There's no, there's no end to it. And you win $375 and walk out with a $175 million payment, that sounds good. And you may sit there like I did for a few moments and think about all the things. And then, I mean, I guess God had me watch that news program because he knew I was going to preach this Sunday. And I went through withdrawal just like you. I thought to myself, wow. What a guy could do with $175 million. And you don't have to pay taxes on that. And you'd have, I tell you what, you'd have more friends and relatives calling you on the phone that next week that you didn't even know you had. You'd have every investment guy in the world trying to call you. Well, you know what? You can invest that $175 million and you can live comfortable the rest of your life. Yeah, I give you the money, you make it off of mine, and I'm going to live comfortable the rest of my life. I got news for you. I've already figured, done the math. I can spend a million dollars a year and live comfortably for the next three lifetimes. I don't need you. Everybody wants to be your friend now. And I get it. If you win the lottery, I'm your new best friend. I'll mow your lawn. I'll walk your dog. I'll come over personally, pick up your tithe check. <laughs> and as I sat there and I thought about what we all think, what well, we could do, all we could buy, then it hit me. Well, $175 million sounds good, but let me tell you this morning what $175 million won't buy. It won't buy your happiness, and it won't buy your joy. It'll never buy your contentment. It'll never buy your peace of mind. You may find if you have a health problem, you can afford the greatest doctors in the world, but it won't cure whatever illness you have if it's terminal. You can't buy forgiveness. You can't buy the blessings of God or the favors of God. It won't help you in relationship with the Lord. It won't buy you true friends. It won't make you a better father or a better mother. 
It certainly won't keep your kids in church. It won't give you wisdom. It'll never give you understanding. It'll never give you love. It'll never provide for you the peace that passes all understanding. And it'll never build your character. That's why many of God's people, a labor of love to build the right house with the right things. Realizing that the things of this world won't make you a better person. There's nothing wrong with them in a balance, but brother, don't get your home better furnished than you do where God lives. And I'll tell you, based on Proverbs, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, the most miserable Christians on the face of this planet, the most disastrous families, the most disastrous Christians you ever saw were the ones who trusted in their own selves and said, we have possessions, we have this, we have buildings, we have all this, we have needed nothing, and didn't know that they were poor, blind, naked, and miserable. And they get to the point in their life, their life, their family, their kids, their marriage, it all winds up a disaster. And it all comes down to two great principles. Why labor for that which does not satisfy? And then setting our eyes on that which is not. You know, in the book of Haggai, that's a great book. The book of Haggai is, a, is one of those places that establishes this truth. And in the book of Haggai, they had, uh, uh, Haggai is a post-captivity book. He writes after they go back, after the 70 years. And Haggai, what happened was when they went back in Ezra and Nehemiah and they began to rebuild, at some point they stopped building. Haggai writes his book 16 years after they go back. And it's really a pretty tough book and he really gets in their face because he says, why have you stopped building God's house? Why have you stopped? And not only have you stopped building God's house, you're now taking all of the things that God designated to build His house and you're building your own homes with them. And He pleads with them. He preaches to them. And He tells them, Don't you understand that you're not building just a building in the temple of God? Don't you get that you're not just building a church building or a temple? What you are building is your nation's future. Because your relationship with God depends on that temple. And you're not finishing it, you're not building it, and you're taking the very materials that have been designated for it, and you're making your houses look really good that you're living in. And you find in the the church age today, so many of God's people stop building their temple. They just quit. They'll go along for a while, you know, and then something else will catch their fancy and they're done. They're done with discipleship. They're done with this. They, they, they just, they get their attention span is so small when it comes to uh, building the right things. And they don't see it either. Just like Israel never saw that the building that they were building, that physical temple, was their future God's people today don't see and understand that building your temple, your body, is your future with God at the judgment seat of Christ. We lose sight of it. You know why? Because we're so busy laboring for things that satisfy not, and we've got our eyes set on things that are not even real. Look at the rest of that verse. For riches certainly make themselves wings and fly away as an eagle toward heaven. 
your money's going to sprout wings. Fly away. Oh, hey, how many times have you seen in your 401k that in just one week when the market tanks, you can lose $10,000? Those little little Ben Franklins, gone. You get your statement, oh, wow, look, I lost $10,000 in a week. You don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. That's why in America, whose God is money, you know, somebody wanted to take, all the atheists wanted to take off the money in God we trust. All the Christians got upset about it. I think they ought to. What a hypocrisy, a country putting on their money in God we trust when money is your God to begin with. So I think it's a great irony and a great comedy of tragedies that on American currency, every dollar you got, you got an eagle with his wings stretched out ready to take off. Because that money will fly away. When you labor to get all you can get and can all you get and want that and hoard it over here and this and buy all these things, let me tell you something. There it goes. I can do a rabbit too. If I, if I, if I. <laughs> hey, and don't miss this little nugget. It flies away. But look at the verse. Where does it fly to? Flies to heaven. It'll all be waiting for you when you get to the judgment seat of Christ. Somebody said, well, you can't take it with you. No, but you sure do send it on ahead. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. The foundation is gold, and you labor to build on it gold, silver, precious stone, or you labor to build on it wood, hay, and stubble. But it's all there when you get there. The true riches of the Word of God versus the false riches of the world. And then, <laughs> we actually, with a serious faith, ask ourselves, why is my life such a mess? Bad investments of our lives, pursuing the things that satisfy not, the things that are not bread. You know, I've preached it to you before, and we've talked about it on Bible study. There's some things in the Bible, I just got to tell you, they scare me to death. They scare me to death. They really do. And uh, I, 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 I hate to preach them. I do preach them because it's my job, but I don't like preaching it. If you think I like to preach everything in the Bible, I don't, because some of those things just overwhelm me, and I, they scare me to death. And I don't talk about it much. Why would you want to talk about something that scares you to death? But there's things in that Bible that terrify me. There's things in that Bible that just, that just will turn my hair white. And I, 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 there's some places, in the, you know, I, I look at Job chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. It's got to be, for a Christian, got to be the scariest place in the Bible. Because there you got six questions that God asks. And I've told you this before. And I preach a sermon on it that the six questions God's going to ask at the judgment seat of Christ. I preach that message all over the country, literally all over the world, for 45 years. 
And I've had people come up with me that don't like that message or don't agree with that analogy, and they'll come up to me, and I had a little old lady come up one time. She says, Brother Alexander, I love you to death, and I pray for you, but I just don't believe that message you preached. And I, I put my arm around her, pulled her close, and I said, Praise the Lord, darling, I so hope you're right. I'm with you, but I don't want to believe it either. But I've learned in Job chapter 38, 3, the Bible says that when God asks a question, somebody's going to have to answer them. And I realize that these six questions, the only one that can answer these, if you look at them, is a born-again child of God in the New Testament. Because in question number one, he wants to ask the question. And I, and I, hey, whether you like it or not, believe it or not, I could care less. It scares the fire out of me, and that's a good thing. But I want to tell you something. I got a sneaking suspicion that this is the way that God works things. When we get there, I know what we think the judgment seat of Christ is going to be. I know. God, it ain't going to be that way. God's got an angle in that thing that he hasn't revealed to show anybody because he knows you and he knows me. And he knows that right now while you're laboring for the wrong things and investing in all the wrong things, he knows what you're doing. You're preparing your cover story for when you get there. And you're going to get there and you're going to, okay, I'm next. Okay, I got this down. Okay, oh, here it comes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What's it to you? What's it to you? Here you come. And you've got to have that thing down there. And he says, okay, I just got, we'll make this quick. I just got six questions for you. I don't think those six questions are on my sheet. They're not on six questions. Oh, six questions. Okay. What are they? Number one. What have you done for unsaved people? What have you done for baby Christians? I worked in a nursery. Is that good? <laughs> the third question. How have you counseled people who struggled in their life? I, I put some nickels in that red kettle at Christmas time. Is that, does, that, does that count for anything? I mean, when you did say anything, how... Declare us the thing as it is. How did you preach the truth when you laid it out? Or did you dance around it? Whose spirit, in everything that you did, whose spirit came from you? Your own human spirit or God's Holy Spirit? And then he's going to say, and lastly, let me ask you this. To whom hast thou uttered words? Now, you look at those questions, how you helped an unsaved person, how you strengthened a baby Christian, how you counseled him that hath no uh, uh, understanding, how that you preached the truth, and how what spirit came from you, and what words you uttered. I'm just going to tell you right now, do with it what you want. There's only one group of people in the whole Bible that fits into that category, and it is me and you. Words. Talk about the words we speak. You know what Einstein said? Einstein, part of his theory on relativity, he said that, uh, that, that whatever we speak, the words that go out of our mouth, they just are endless. They never end. When we put out radio broadcasts or we do something, it goes out into space and it keeps going and going and going and going and going. Einstein didn't know where it was going. But he said, if you could get in a rocket ship, this is 1933, if you could get in a rocket ship and fast far enough, you could actually catch up to the words of the Gettysburg Address that Abraham Lincoln said because they're moving out there. Now, that sounds nice if you want to make an atom bomb. But what bothers me is where are they going? 
And I got a sneaking suspicion that you're going to have your little piece of paper. I'm going to have my little piece of paper. I'm going to open it up and I'm going to have my answers here. And about that time, every word I ever spoke in all of my life, going to roll in at the judgment seat of Christ. Category over here. I'm oversimplifying this. Catering over here. Fishing. Golf. Sports. Whatever. Job. On and on and on. And over here will be the category, the words you spoke with Christ. How about after they took all the cuss words out, you only had about five or six words out of the 15 million words that you spoke in your lifetime about him. Your little piece of paper won't help you in that. That'll show anybody paying attention that you labored for the wrong things. Now, he talks about riches in the passage today. Labor not to be rich. You've got to have money to be rich. I'll tell you something else. When I would preach this, I would lay this out. Boy, I would, this would scare the fire out of him. You know what always bothered me about money? I don't care if it's a dollar bill, a $50 bill. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's down to a penny. I don't care if it's a nickel or dime. Any country I ever went to in any period of time. I found Roman coins that were 3rd century B.C. that had Constantine's picture on it. I found them all the way with Tracian, the Roman emperor. There wasn't a piece of money that was ever built or made or minted or coined that didn't have somebody's superinscription of their head on it. What if? What if at the judgment seat of Christ, every dime, every dollar, everything we ever had comes rolling down to that thing and rolls down at our feet and the head on it speaks for what it was spent for? What if at the judgment seat of Christ, it isn't, it isn't this who condemns you, it is. How about if it's Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson or Ben Franklin or Jackson? How about if every piece of money God ever gave us, us to ask that I be stewards of, rolls up at our feet and at the great judgment seat of Christ? How about at the judgment seat of Christ, if you spent more money on chlorine for your pool than you did to put the gospel out of Jesus Christ? There'll be some of God's people there that all their life spent more money on dog food than they did to get the gospel out. What a day that's going to be. Then it says in verse 6, you can breathe easy now, I'm done with that. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. Now let me tell you doctrinally here, this is the Antichrist. We saw it last week in the false feast. The evil eye of the Antichrist, for those of you that are caring about it, will be found in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17. But inspirationally, it will go back to verse 5, and uh, the evil eye will be to the man uh, who will set his eye on that which is not. The things that aren't real, the things that are not even there. Look at the last part of verse 6. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. In other words, don't covet what he has. Don't look at somebody's big house or somebody's this or that or have a million dollars or have all this stuff and walk away saying, man, I'd love to have that. Be content with what you have. You know what? Guy said one time, I wish God would give me a, I wish God would, would give me a, a, a million dollars. If he gave me a million dollars, he said, I would, I would, I would, I, I, I would give him $100,000 of it. And I said to him, why wouldn't you give it all to him? If he was God enough to give you the first million, he's God enough to give you the second million. But that's what we do. 
God, you give me, I'll give you a, a little piece of it, and then look what I'm going to do. In other words, don't covet what he has. Don't desire all those things. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't labor for that which satisfieth not. Don't sit around all day and daydream about what somebody else has. You know what we do? We go through our whole life as Christians focusing on things that we don't have and never look at the things that we do have. That Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. And boy, if I've learned anything in life, and boy, the proverb really lays it out, I want to tell you something. In this world, all that glitters is not gold. And the truth of the matter is, if you want to get right down to it, and I'll just say this and then I'll move on quickly. It's not the fact that we need more money to be happy. It's not the fact that we need more money to contend. We're in a mess we're in because we haven't done right with what God has already given us. And we want to add more to that pile. Neither desire thou his dainty meat. I want to tell you something. There isn't anything that anybody's got out there who got millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's J.P. Morgan or Donald Trump or whatever millionaire out there, some movie star. Let me tell you something. You have got nothing that I desire. I mean, when you stop and consider, I mean, we sing the song, count your many blessings, name them one by, count your blessings, name them one by one. Do you? Well, when you do, you desire nothing that they got. I mean, you got salvation this morning, do you? Amen. You got 99.99% of the world beat right out of the gate. You got the right Bible this morning? Well, that's a good start. If you have a working knowledge of it, man, you're way beyond everything else in this world. Your family in church this morning, they sitting next to you? Are they in ministry together going down to restart? Are they saved? Your kids love the Lord? Man, you got it made. You got the hand of God in your life? Is God leading you and guiding you and directing you? You got a good Bible-believing church that preaches the Word of God? And your life, your life, your life, your pathway in life is filled with men and women that you labored with, discipled, counseled, helped, stayed with, and brought them through. And you're going to be desirous of those things? <laughs> I don't think so. You're going to envy what? A house? A boat? A Harley Davidson? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to cover somebody's bank account or what they got? Man, if you got those seven things right there, you got it all. Those are the laborers. Oh, you got money, you got friends, so your money runs out. So you can't buy the drinks anymore. You invest your life in somebody and disciple them and teach them the Bible and you watch them do somebody else. It goes on. The legacy of your investment and your labor is endless. Well, the other one is gone when the money's gone. And you're going to envy that? You're going to envy a guy who's got a hot wife who is unbelievably beautiful, but when you marry her, you've got to get a prenup agreement because you don't trust her? Wow, you got something there. Well, 
We spend our whole lives wanting things that aren't real, laboring in things that will not satisfy, pursuing all the things that are not, and then when you lose your marriage, you lose your kids, when you lose everything, when you're not happy, now you've been married for 10, 15, 20 years, or been saved that long, and all those things are gone, What happened? How, how did this happen to me? Why did this happen? Why? 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 I'll tell you why. Because you labored with the wrong things. That's why. You invested in the wrong things. You spent your whole life pursuing things that were not real. They were not there. And now you're, you're surprised that they weren't there at the end of your life? Hey, buddy, they weren't there when you started going through them. They didn't start and then dissipate. They were as phony and unreal when you started as they are at the end of your life. You just got so caught up in labor, you just piled it on. And now here you are. And you actually wonder why you have the issues you have. And you know what? Because you won't deal with it, you'll go through your whole life from this point on, blaming it on everybody else. Well, it's this person's problem, or it's this, or it's that. You'll never take ownership. My old drill sergeant used to say something. I can't put it in the language he did, but he used to say this. If it's a crap sandwich and you made it, you got to eat it. That's not the word he used, but... They're not us. We like to divvy it up. Ooh, there's a gross sandwich. Anybody got a knife? I want to I share this with somebody. <laughs> you envy what? You envy those things out there when God has given you everything that you could ever want? And they're going to go through all their life. Hey, it even gets worse or better, however you look at it. They're going to go through all their life fooling themselves in all of those things. The world, and then at the end, when it all fails them, you know what happens? They get to go to hell for all of eternity. On your worst day, no matter how screwed your life up is, no matter what messes you've made, if you're truly saved, at least at the end, you get to go to heaven. You've invested your life in the right things. You've got a legacy of people that you've taken and trained and discipled and counseled and brought them through tough times. And you get to see the fruit of your labor. And I want to tell you something. Your investment is paid off. Where the other people have invested in all the things and the possessions they have, it all gets old. You have to sell it. You have to keep updating it. You have to get the newer model. You have to do this. When you invest your life in a person and somebody else, and how many times have I told you there's only two things in this world worth investing your life in? One of them is the Word of God, and the other one's the souls of men. And listen, it does not take a rocket science. <laughs> to see who's building what. I've watched some of you guys, gals come into this church. Uh, you're incredible. Uh, you just blow me away. You're absolutely incredible. 
I've watched you come in, and in six months' time, you're moving, and a year, you're unbelievable, and, and two years later, three years later, you're, 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 you're just, you're untouchable, you're so on fire. And I've watched some other God's people, five years, seven years, ten years, twelve years, struggling at, with the same stuff. Why is that? I'm going to tell you here in a minute. Two great keys to it. Verse 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Two great keys to the Christian life. Only two. And they're real simple. One, what are you laboring in today? What's your building program like? And two, where is your heart attitude with it? And number two will always be in direct relationship to number one. There will be no peace, there will be no joy, there will be no happiness, there will be no blessings, there will be no kumbaya with the family, there will be no satisfaction in life without these two things in the right place. Everything else will just be, as I've talked about Haggai chapter 1 verse 6, a bag with holes. You put it all in, you go through life, and when you get to the end of life, it bag had a hole in it and all fell out. Because when it comes to you in the world and your flesh, there is no satisfying the flesh. Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart the mouth speak. In your mind, in your heart, in your attitude, it's going to be a good treasure or an evil treasure. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How simple is that? The Bible teaches that when a man labors to be uh, whatever he labors to be on the inside and building his house, what he thinks about, what he lusts after, what he covets, what he desires, will in time form itself into the attitude of his heart, and that's what he becomes. And when he speaks, you know exactly where he is at, or she's at, because it's so clear. You know, I talked the last week about learning the art of observing. And you learn to observe by watching situations, circumstances. Uh, a, a, a Christian who's got it together will never just see things. He'll always be observing things. Uh, in time, and this is what I try to teach you in the people ministry, you, you, you develop that and fine-tune that to the point where you can, somebody can come to you with a problem, tell you the problem, and because through their speaking to you, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you know the principles, you can pretty much understand where it's all coming from and where it's all going to just by listening to what they said. Because you're observing. You're observing. And when you observe something, David in the Bible was a great observer. Did you ever notice that? An observer will always talk to himself. I'll find myself talking to myself all the time. I'll have to meet with somebody and, I, and I'll be saying, I'll be thinking about it and I'll be saying, I'll be talking to myself what I'm, what I'm going to say. I, I, I talk to myself all the time. Now, in the world, they say if you talk to yourself, you're crazy. <laughs> but who doesn't know that a New Testament Bible-living Christian is crazy? We are. You know what the book of Psalms is? You know why we love the book of Psalms? The whole book of Psalms is nothing more than a man talking to himself and writing it down. Yeah. That's all it is. David was great at it. And you know, I'll observe things and then I'll talk to myself. I'm a great conversationalist, so I talk to myself and I'll say, what, 
What, what do you think that is? And the Lord will say, well, remember this principle here or remember that principle there? I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And he said, that's probably what you got. Now, you know this and you know that already. Now, you've seen this and you've watched it for a while. This is nothing new to you. And remember this situation here. Remember, you've been through four other ones just like that. I know the people change, but the circumstances in human nature never do. So don't make that this, but look at this and understand that within this is some of this. And you observe. You observe. And now in my life, I, I observe things. I, I try to teach you to observe. Most of God's people are just one-dimensional. They just see something and that's what they see. I don't want you to do that. You guys that went down to Columbia yesterday, you, you just didn't see an opportunity to go. You observed an opportunity that was going to have endless results. So you went. It wasn't just a trip for you. It was a missions trip for you. And you observed that. And I'll look at situations and I'll say to myself, I'll see this situation, this person, this whatever, and I'll, 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 I'll ask myself, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll observe it, and I'll say to myself, okay, what's the difference? And I'll speak to the Lord. I'll talk to myself. I'll say, what's the difference between an atheist who wouldn't dream of financing a church or supporting it with any money and a Christian who won't either? Observation number two. What's the difference between an agnostic that won't ever pick up a Bible and read it and a Christian that never reads his either? Observation number three. What's the difference between an evolutionist who says there's no absolutely truth and a pastor who gets in the pulpit and says there's no absolute truth? See, we need to observe things. When we observe, we absorb and we understand because God will always give you the principles and he'll establish a course of action and direction through those principles. Observation number four. What's the difference between an unsaved man and his self-righteousness who will never take responsibility for his actions and a child of God who's saved but won't take responsibility for theirs either? You know, you take a guy who walks into a place, there's 28 video cameras recording him walking in. He pulls out a gun, God forbid, and he kills 10 people. Somebody disarms him, throws him to the floor, gets the gun, cops show up. They got the guy on the floor. They look at the video. He walks in, same guy on the floor, pulls out a gun, shoots 10 people, they're all dead, and when he goes for his arraignment, the judge says, how do you plea? And his lawyer says, not guilty. You see, that's the world's way. You're caught on camera, you kill 10 people in front of the whole world, but you're not going to take responsibility for that action because our system tells you not to. And you know God's people do the same thing? They do the exact same thing. They'll mess up their life, they'll mess up their kids, they'll mess up their marriage, they'll mess up their life, they'll mess up everything in their world. And yet, when it comes down to the court time reality, I'm not guilty, Your Honor. You know, that'll play right up to the judgment seat of Christ. I, I observe things. 
my fifth observation. What's the difference between an unsaved man who will never go to church and a Christian who won't go either? My sixth observation. What is the difference between an unsaved man who is of the world and a Christian child of God who lives like the world? Do the same things. And the answer is there is no difference. And you can tell you can tell everything about anything by just observing two things in somebody's life. One, what they labor in life to build. And two, that labor being the treasure of their heart, good or bad. A good treasure or an evil treasure. And the things that are the inward part of them will always manifest itself to the outward. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Well, you know, when you study your Bible, you find out that God spends his whole time observing man. You can't miss it in the Old Testament that he's observing Israel through everything they do. I think the book of Esther is the greatest book in the Bible that proves that because God has not mentioned it in one place, but yet God is behind the scenes observing everything that's going on and never loses control. And you know, in your life, in my life, he does the same thing. He observes us. He observes us to the point that he sees what we're really building in our hearts and what our real treasure is. And I think the Lord looks at us and I think He probably looks at us and He thinks to Himself, what's the difference? Because in Luke chapter 7, verse 46, I mean, I know we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but I want to tell you something. I, I, God, is, God is tempted on all points yet like we are yet without sin. And I want you to know, we talk about disappointing God. We talk about breaking God's heart, Christ's heart. I, 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 believe, I believe He loves us so much that there's times that what you and I do absolutely frustrate Him. And you say, I know that's true because look at, look, look at what he, look how He was with the nation of Israel. There were times when He wanted to come down and wipe out Israel. I mean, Moses, you know, the Bible says He's a man that uh, speaketh to God face to face like a man speaketh to his friend. Well, you ought to go back and look at their two dialogues together. Well, there were times when Moses come in the tent and he was so mad at the nation of Israel, he said to God, he says, God, you don't you just come down and kill them all, wipe them all out, just murder them. They're worthless. And God would say to Moses, now, 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 Moses, come on, they're just like flesh. It's okay. It's okay. Then there's other times that Moses come in a tent and God's stomping up and down and saying, I'm going to wipe every one of them out. I'm going to open up the earth and swallow them down. I'm going to kill every one of them. And Moses says to God, come on now, Lord. Settle down. Just cool off here. Let me, let me sing you a psalm or something. Just cool off a little bit. Now, if you do that, what are all the other nations going to say? And God said, yeah, you're right, Moses. That's a relationship with God that most of God's people can never understand or get to. But there is the intimacy between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking like a man speaking with his friend. And I'm sure there's times that we all frustrate him. And I'm sure when he looked at his disciples, I know in that story, there were times, I, the story of Mary and Martha. Boy, if you cannot read the frustration that he has with Martha, 
Here's Mary out here doing everything right. Here's Martha doing everything wrong. And she's out there taking credit for it. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me, Lord. And she's over here working and she's saying, Lord, Lord, Lord you're not watching what I'm doing. The Lord got so exasperated with her, just like he does you and me. But Luke chapter 7, verse 46, I think probably one of the greatest questions anywhere in the Bible for all of us. It fits right into where we're at today. Where the Lord said, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, why is that? We claim to be his child. We claim to be washed in the blood. We claim to have the Holy Spirit of God in us. But what's the difference? What's the difference between all of the things of laboring in the wrong thing? How does a child of God truly get off the track to labor in all of those things and make an absolute mess out of his life? Lose their kids, lose their marriage, lose everything about them. How does that happen? It all starts. It all starts with you laboring in the wrong thing and going after the thing that will never satisfy you. And pretty soon you get caught into that. You've got to have more. You've got to have this. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be better. It's not be satisfied. Hey, I've seen pastors in churches that had a building that was absolutely unbelievable. Most young churches, most churches would die to have that building. It was everything that state of the art. And you know what? After about two years, the pastor says, we got to build another big building. Why? Because you're not satisfied with what you have. And I'll tell you, that'll always lead you down the wrong road. So you put your people, all of that money, all of that time that could be spent in doing the ministry goes into a labor for something that will never satisfy. Because you know what? After you're in that building for a while, it won't be big enough either. You'll need something else. You'll need this. You'll need that. Oh, I wish for you to put one of these in. And pretty soon, you'll have to buy more property to buy a big... And after 20, 30, 40 years in the ministry, you have enough empty buildings that you could start a Safeway program. Make them into a grocery store. All because we're not satisfied with what we have. All because we labor to be rich. We labor in the things that will not satisfy and we focus and pursue the things that are not. And all of our Christian life will simply come down to just two things. What you labor in to build and where your heart is in building it. A good treasure or an evil treasure. Well, we'll hold up there. And remember, there is...